men and women, I want you to understand something today. Every pastor is called by God to clearly teach and preach the Bible. The Bible is the whole counsel of God. And that's what we're called and commanded to share and to preach and give to people. Think about this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I charge thee therefore before God, Paul said to Timothy, and before the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word, he said. Preach the word. Don't preach your opinion. Don't preach man's opinion. Don't preach what's popular. No, no, just preach the word. Stay true to the Bible. Teach the Bible. Share the Bible. Be instant. That literally means be ready and be steady. <laughs> be instant in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's not popular. When it's convenient, when it's not convenient. You preach the word. Reprove. That means to tell someone a fault. Rebuke. That means to, literally to call out. Exhort with all long suffering. In other words, you continue to do this and you do it with patience and endurance. You do it with all long suffering and doctrine. The word doctrine there is teaching or instruction. For the time will come, Paul said, when they, the listeners, will not endure or will not tolerate, they will not put up with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is true doctrine. Sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. Sound doctrine is Bible teaching and Bible preaching that builds the health of the believers. It's sound, healthy, wholesome, truthful teaching and instruction and doctrine. And Paul said the day is coming when people won't put up with that. They won't endure that. They don't want that. But after their own lust, after their own desires... They will heap to themselves. They will gather and bring and surround themselves with teachers. And then he goes on to say it's because these individuals have, and it's a unique way of saying it, they have itching ears. Or in other words, they want their ears tickled. (laughs) They want their ears scratched. (laughs) They have itching ears. They just want their ears tickled. And A.T. Robertson, that noted Greek scholar, went on to say that most modern-day preachers will simply furnish the latest tickle. And unfortunately, that's true. And then Paul went on to say to Timothy, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. It's kind of like every time I read that phrase, I think of little children. Now, I know your children probably weren't like this, but there have been times in the lives of our sons when we would give them instruction and especially when they were, of course, they don't do it now. But when they were small, they were, they, I'm not listening. I don't like what I'm hearing. And did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that there are multitudes of people in our culture who when the Bible is preached clearly and taught plainly, it's as though they put their fingers in their ears, just like they did it in the book of Acts at the preaching of Stephen, they didn't like what they heard. And they stopped up their ears. Paul said there are are people 
that when the truth is taught and told, they're going to put their fingers in their ears and turn away from the truth, and they're going to go after, they're going to turn away from the, the, the truth and be turned, notice this, to fables. They'd rather hear somebody tell lies and myths and fiction than embrace the truth of God. And I'll say this to us, ladies and gentlemen, this current generation is the epitome and fulfillment of this deception that is unveiled and portrayed to us by the Apostle Paul. We're living in that day. Friend, we are living in the day of the itching ear church and the itching ear listener. Can I get an amen about that? Know this. While God's word, God's truth is the answer for us, it is. But it has never been soft. It has never been palatable to the carnal person. It always cuts deep. It always exposes. It always lays bare. It always deals with us right where we are. God never cuts corners. He never minces his words. God's truth is not always easy to swallow, and it certainly isn't always popular to declare even within the church. Very often, the truth hurts. It hurts me. It hurts my conscience. It hurts my ego. It bruises my pride. It exposes my sin. It is a fire that burns. It is a hammer that crushes. It is a scalpel that cuts open. It is a sword that pierces. It is a mirror that shows us who we really are. And that's not always easy to deal with. You and I have a tendency to do just exactly what King Jehoiakim did in Jeremiah chapter 36. And I want you to leave your Bible open to this passage because we're going to go through it quickly together. Don't get nervous. So what do you do, Christian, when the truth hurts? By the way, if your life and mine is not regularly being exposed and prodded, and I'm going to use a word used in the book of Acts, pricked, poked, stung by the truth. And my dear friend, it could be a sign that we're not allowing ourselves to be exposed to it that much. Because I know this, gang, when the truth of God is read, when the truth of God is understood, when the truth of God is declared, when the truth of God is preached, when the truth of God is taught, and when it intersects my life, there is always going to be exposure of who I am. So what do you do when that happens? How are we supposed to respond to that? Because I pray that that happens regularly when we're together in the house of God. And I'll say this to us, gang. If we're listening, 
if we're in tune with the Spirit of God and if God is talking and we're in tune with His presence, that will happen on a regular basis. I want to give you four statements today. I want you to think about these. First of all, truth number one. God's truth is given to us that we would respond to it properly and be blessed. In case you don't know what's going on in Jeremiah 36, the land is about to go into full captivity by the Babylonian Empire. God has orchestrated these events and allowed the Babylonians to come and surround Judah and Jerusalem. God has already prophesied that because of their national sins, He was going to allow these catastrophes and these, this captivity to take place. Again, that's not something that the, that the inhabitants and citizens of Jerusalem wanted to hear. They wanted a different message. They wanted a softer message. They wanted, they wanted something uh, that would reverse this. They didn't like what they heard. But God gave us truth. In verse 1 it says, It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word, this prophecy, came to Jeremiah from the Lord. It wasn't something Jeremiah concocted in his own mind. It wasn't something he and his counselors got together and consorted with. It came directly from God. And he said, I want you to write this down. I want you to write it in a roll, a scroll, we would say. Verse 2, take a roll of a book and write In it, all the words that I've spoken to you. So God commanded Jeremiah to put this prophecy, to write it down. One writer said God commanded Jeremiah to do this so that the message might be more effectively delivered. If the word was present in written form, it could be more easily remembered, consulted, and meditated upon. And that's absolutely true. It seems likely that the scroll was more of a compilation of the Lord's prophecies against Judah, his warnings of impending judgment, and even his call to return to him. And that's why the Lord gave the prophecy. Not just to announce or pronounce judgment without any hope or help. But he said, I'm giving this to you. I'm letting you know far enough in advance that there is a possibility and a likelihood that if you repent, if you turn back to me, It will alleviate so much of this needless destruction. In verse 3 it says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Philip Ryken, the noted commentator, said that the words of this prophecy were not intended simply to terrify They were also intended to save. God didn't give these instructions and this warning just to make people's hair stand on end. He didn't want to leave them bug-eyed and terrified. That wasn't the end result, the end goal. God wanted His message to be clearly declared so that people would respond to it. Today, God doesn't want you just to be shocked by what you hear. He doesn't want you to simply be impressed by what you hear or depressed by what you hear. 
He wants all of us to respond in 100% obedience to whatever it is that he's speaking to our conscience about. He wants us, all of us today, he wants you and I to make a decision of some kind. I believe biblical teaching and preaching should call for a response from every listener. I make no apologies for that. That's why at the conclusion of every single service, we give an opportunity for you, the listener, and for me, who I'm supposed to be listening to the voice of the Lord as well, to respond in some way. God doesn't call us to be neutral. He calls us to respond in faith and obedience. And according to verse 3, the message was simply this. It was, hear the Lord, return to God, Be forgiven by him and live. Gang, that's the message this morning. We listen to the voice of the Lord from his word. We respond to what he's saying. We're forgiven by God and yet then we live. Truly it is the message of life. It's interesting that it's believed that this event here in chapter 36 took place almost 20 years before the final conquest of Jerusalem. It was still possible to see God rescue Judah. They had 20 years to repent. And unfortunately, we know the rest of the story. But they chose not to. Adam Clark said it was possible to have the judgment averted. But in order for this to happen, they had to hear what God was speaking. Every man had to turn from his evil way. If they did so, he said, God would graciously forgive their iniquity and their sins. Notice verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Barak, the son of Neriah. Now, Barak is an interesting character. He was Jeremiah's assistant and secretary. And the reason he called for Barak to come was he gave the scroll to Barak because in verse 5, Jeremiah says, I am shut up. That doesn't mean he was in prison. It simply means he was, he, was in, he, he was excommunicated. He was debarred from the temple due to the controversial nature of his initial prophecy. In other words, the high priest and the officials there in the temple didn't like his message. And so they literally kicked Jeremiah out of the temple. <laughs> He wasn't allowed to go preach or prophesy there anymore. They wanted a soft message. They wanted something, even in the Old Testament, that would scratch their ears. They wanted something that was smooth, that was easy. And they kicked Jeremiah out. And so he turns to his secretary, his copyist, his assistant. And he says, here, you take it, and you go, and you read this. You go right to the temple. I can't go. They've kicked me out. You go and you declare this prophecy from God. And so verse 6, he tells him what to do. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the goal was that the people would express repentance and experience restoration. And that's God's intent and purpose every single time we read or hear his word. He wants us to respond to it. So the question is this morning, will you? How are you going to respond to God's truth when even sometimes it hurts and it exposes who we are and what we are and what we need and what God wants to change? 
So truth number two. Truth number one is God's truth is given to us that we would respond to it properly and be blessed. Truth number two, based on verse 8 through 21, God's truth, when clearly communicated, is deeply and personally convicting. Now hang on just a minute. You see, based on verses 9 and 10, the Bible says that when Barak went into the temple and he read the prophecy, that that the common people, the common citizens responded. In verse 9, it talks about that a whole year later after the prophecy came, Barak is again in the temple and he's teaching, he's reading the prophecy. He's reading this prophetic scroll to the people and they respond to him. It is troubling to them. But not only the common people, but verses 11 through 19 say that the officials and the leaders were troubled and deeply convicted. The word of God, the prophecy contained in the scroll, was now being proclaimed and spread all throughout Judah. There were whisperings and murmurings and it was spreading from house to house and village to village. It was in the marketplace. It was everywhere. They couldn't get away from the prophecy made its way to the ears and hearts of many of the national officials. Their hearts are moved. They are sympathetic and responsive to what they hear in the prophecy. It's interesting to me that because they realize that the king and his close advisors are antagonistic to God's message, it's interesting. They even order Jeremiah and Barak to go into hiding for their own protection. And that's exactly what they did. The Bible says that the Lord had hid them and protected them. So this message, when it was being declared, it was speaking to them, challenging them, convicting them, prodding them, hey, bothering them. They were responding. But then it came to the king. In verse 20 and 21... It is read to him, and these same God-fearing officials, they take the scroll, they hide it, and then they go to the king in verse 20 and 21, and they rehearse it directly in the ears of King Jehoiakim. Now, they anticipated what his response would be. And I want you to know that when God's word is sent out, and God's truth is clearly understood, the Holy Spirit takes that truth, and he zeroes in, Right where we are, right where we live. So truth number one, God's truth is given so that we would respond and be blessed. God's truth, when clearly communicated, is deeply and personally convicting. And then truth number three, now listen carefully. God's truth, it generates different responses from different people. You see, the common people heard it gladly and wanted to respond. Even some of the leaders and officials heard it and wanted to respond in obedience. They felt like it was such an important message that they wanted the king to hear it even though they thought they knew how he would respond. So you have the people and the officials and they respond one way. It's like they said, yes, Lord. Man, That strikes a chord with us. We hear this and we understand it. Yes, Lord, we want to respond in obedience to it. But then they came to the king. And I want you to hear me carefully. The king had an entirely different response. I don't know how many folks we have in this building right here in this auditorium today. 
I think from the looks of it, about 3,000 maybe. But no. 500 and some just in this auditorium probably. You know what that means? That means more than likely there's going to be 500 and some different kinds of responses. Because everybody's going to respond differently. Some of us, when we hear the message of God, we're going to just be like, talk to the hand. Some of us are going to be like, oh man, oh Lord, you're speaking to me. Man, that hits me right where I live. I need to do something about that. Some of us are going to be like, well, we're going to do what Preacher Patrick used to talk about. We're going to get our shovel, right? And we're going to get our shovel, and when God's truth comes to us, we're going to shovel it over our shoulder to the person sitting behind us. Or sometimes we like to shovel it over to somebody sitting on the same road. Here, this isn't for me, Buster. This is for you. But we're all going to have a response. wonder how the king responded. Verse 22 says that he was in his winter house. Now what that means, because this was in the month of December, it was chilly. It doesn't mean he was in a separate palace. What it literally means is that he was in a different room. And that room was structured and set up with a fireplace. It was more suited for warmth during these cooler winter months. And sure enough, there in the room was a fireplace with a fire burning at the time the scroll was read to the king. Verse 23, notice what it says. This is very interesting. And it came to pass that when Jehudai, how'd you like that to be your name? Jehudai. Who died? Jehudai. That's who. All right. When he read three or four leaves, he read three or four leaves. That he, the king, Jehoiakim, notice this, he cut the scroll with a pen knife. And he cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. You say, preacher, what in the world? What happened here? Well, here's what happened. The king heard the word and he was convicted by it. He didn't like it one iota. He was pricked in his conscience. And he obviously didn't appreciate it. He didn't agree with it. He didn't subscribe to it. So he took a small pen knife. This pen knife was used by the scribes to trim their pens and cut their parchment paper. And he used that knife to cut up the volume, to cut up the book. Then he threw it all in the fire to be destroyed. He shredded it and destroyed it. I want you to watch this little video clip and see if you can think of times in your life and in our culture when the same thing doesn't happen. I was coming over here in a taxi and the cab driver said to me, Sir Ian McKellen, he's the one that when he stays in hotels, rips the part of the Bible out that criticizes homosexuality. Yes, it is true. It's Leviticus 18.22 that I object to. Or is it 22.18? I've always got to look it up. Thou uh, shalt not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. And, and they, um, 
think the punishment for being abominable was to be stoned to death. I don't think these are very comfortable words to have the bedside of, of someone who had been passing a lonely night away from loved ones. And uh, I think it's rather obscene and pornographic and, and, and shouldn't be there. So I removed it. How many Bibles have you? I've no idea. But other people do it as well. People send me <laughs> evidence that they've been uh, removing that. Now, this is not a sermon bashing Ian McKellar. This is not a sermon bashing homosexuality, even though it is absolutely a sin. This is a point to reveal that inside the heart of every man and every woman is an inclination that if we can't change God's law and God's word, we will dismiss it and at least cut it out of our lives. Now, most of us wouldn't have the gall or the desire or the audacity to take a penknife to start shredding sections of scripture. But listen to what noted commentator F.B. Meyer said. Listen carefully. We are all tempted to use the penknife on God's book. You see, there are passages in it which we do not like. Those that cross our favorite notions, those that point out our pet cherished sins practically we eliminate them we never read them or we at least explain them away and even at times profess to doubt their inspiration so I ask you today are there certain portions of scripture that when it's read when it's preached, when it's revealed, you take the pen knife and you cut out that portion that talks about in Ephesians putting away all wrath and bitterness and evil speaking and unforgiveness. The passage in Proverbs that talks about abstaining from alcohol, drinking it socially. The passage there all through Scripture in the Old and New Testaments that talk about being faithful to your spouse and avoiding sexual sin of any and every kind. We take our pen knife and in our culture and in our private world, it's as though we cut it out of Scripture. Maybe it's that portion there in Proverbs 3 that talks about honoring the Lord with the first fruits of thine increase and giving of the tithe. Maybe it's that portion of Scripture over in Mark chapter 15, verse 16 that talks about go ye into all the world and share and preach and give the gospel to every creature. And yet we know that you know what? It says go into all the world. That even means across the street. But that's not convenient, that's not easy, that's not popular, and that cuts against the grain. 
I don't know, I don't know what portion of scripture. Children, do not try this at home. I don't know what portion of scripture. Hold on. I forgot my water. Okay. What portion? I'm just asking. What portion of Scripture are you privately, secretly, in your conscience cutting out of God's Word? Uh oh. Don't be alarmed. Speaking of alarm, anyway. You say, I can't believe you did that to the Bible. Well, I didn't do it to the Bible, gang. It's just a notebook, okay? All right. But how many times, how many times in our private life do we, as it were, do that to the Bible? And you may not be like Sir Ian. You may not do that to your Gideon Bibles in hotel rooms. But all of us have a tendency to omit and disregard and dismiss portions of this book that don't g-haul with our personal and private life. And I close with this truth, truth number four. Are you still with me? Say amen. God's truth is always authoritative and always right. I can try, as it were, as hard as I can to cut it up and dismiss it. I can even try to shred it and to burn it and to silence the prophet. But despite the objections and hostilities of man, God's word still remains. Because even though the king shredded the document, shredded the scroll, and burned it in fire, God told Jeremiah again, you go write another copy. Notice the powerful, unharnessed nature of God's truth. I see here the persistent, uncompromising nature of God's truth. I see the preserved, unchanging nature of God's truth. In spite of who's against it, in spite of who doesn't like it, in spite of all the efforts on my part, even as an individual person, to silence the voice of God, I can never do it. Why? Because God's word is forever settled in heaven and can never be destroyed. One man said, the captain may destroy the map which indicates the rocks in his course. But that will not rob the rocks of the cruel fangs with which they pierce the timbers of the captain's ship. Think about that just a moment. You may not like the map that points out the pitfalls that you and I will encounter if we do not repent and follow the Lord. That doesn't change the consequences one bit. God's truth is forever, forever settled 
Removing the word from one's presence doesn't remove the word. It's forever settled and forever obligatory and forever authoritative. The ink and parchment can be burned, but God's word can never be destroyed. Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What God has spoken cannot be destroyed, it cannot be changed, and it will never be silenced. In spite of what I try to do or you try to do to silence it. Our sin is still condemned by it, and we are still accountable to obey it. I say this to you, dear friends in love, but that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth gave his life as a sacrifice on Calvary's cross. It was to take my place and yours. And he paid our sin debt. And as a believer, God gives us his precious truth. So here's what I'm going to challenge you with today. Here's the challenge as we close. Lean in, lean in, listen carefully. Put down the knife. In your private world, put down the knife. Stop trying to cut things out of Scripture that rub us the wrong way. Number two, pick up your Bible. And number three, put yourself under its full authority. Just come up under it like you'd come up under an umbrella and pray that every part of you would daily and deeply submit to the Lord and the Lordship of Jesus Christ as revealed through His Word. I don't know what the Lord or how the Lord is speaking to you today. I know what He's speaking to me about. I encourage and challenge and urge and beg us today to obey the Lord. Let's do business with God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed all across this auditorium.